0: So Pastor Brian's been walking us through Romans, Romans 2 recently, focusing on the judgments of God in history. And when he asked me to preach, he said, I want you to preach on grace. And I said, well, hallelujah, because I'd much rather preach on grace than judgment. (laughs) This this is my favorite subject. I'm going to start with a little quiz here this morning. Uh, So please uh, raise your hand to respond to the following questions. How many of you would say that in God's sight you qualify as a sinner? Uh-huh. and that because of that, you deserve to be separated from God forever. Uh-huh. Uh, how many of you believe you cannot save yourself? Uh-huh. But you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, and that if you will trust him by his grace, he will save you. Yeah. And that when you do that, you can be assured of uh, his, his spirit coming into your life, and you'll spend eternity with him. See, this is great. It's very encouraging to see. Almost everybody here uh, believes and understands the gospel. We we know that we are saved by grace alone, and I'm sure you rejoice in that. But, But, friends, over 45 years of pastoral ministry, I have observed that many Christians who understand this, who believe this with all their heart, somehow fail to live in that grace in their daily lives. We start out by grace, but we don't continue with grace. We don't follow through. So my hope this morning is to help us learn to live in the grace that saves us because the gospel really is good news still for us who are saved. You know how important it is to follow through on things in life in general, right? In a sport like tennis, it's important to follow through with your swing. If you just hit the ball and then stop, then something's going to happen. The ball's going to go in the net. We can follow through on other activities. My mother started me on piano lessons in the second grade, and in the sixth grade, I gave it up. And today, I wish I had followed through with those lessons. Most often, the follow-through part is just like the beginning part. You don't change something midstream. You just keep going in the same manner or direction that you were. So this morning, I want to talk about follow-through in the Christian life. Now, let's look at how this was lived out in the churches of the first century, and I think we'll see pretty clearly how it applies to us. This is Galatians 3, verse 1 through 5. Is that based? Yeah. Can you read that? Yes. Yes. Barely, okay. Um, you foolish Galatians! <laughs> Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish... After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? So Paul has heard some reports of what's been going on there in the region of Galatia, and he's very concerned, so concerned that he calls them foolish and bewitched. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He's referring to his preaching in the region, in which he drew word pictures for them, and they saw in their mind's eye clearly that Jesus had been crucified for them, and that all they needed to do was put their trust in him, and they would be saved. But it appears they had not followed through with what they started. As he says later in in the chapter in verse 7, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? He asks, who has bewitched you? Bewitched translates a word that means to fascinate by making false representations. And that's exactly what had happened to the believers there in in the Galatia region. There were some Jews who had come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But they thought that since they they were Jews and then they put their faith in Jesus, that if a Gentile wanted to be a follower of Jesus, they had to become Jews first. And their focus was on keeping the Old Testament law of Moses, specifically the bit about circumcision. So they were teaching these Gentiles, if you want to be right with God, if you really want to be saved, you need to be circumcised. So this teaching fascinated the Gentile believers. It bewitched them. It took them in because all of the first Christians were Jews first. So obviously, if you, who are not a Jew, want to be a Christian, you've got to be a Jew first. It made some sense, but it was also terribly wrong because it created a performance standard in addition to faith in order to be acceptable to God. You've got to have faith, and you've got to be circumcised. Okay? And then Paul has a series of rhetorical questions that are going to expose the problem. Now, before he gets to the question he really wants, he's got a little you know, softball, easy question that he'll set them up for the question that's really on his mind. The first question is, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law, or by believing what you heard? Okay, he says, how did you start? How were you saved? This question is based on the fact that every true Christian has the spirit of God living in them. Christ is in us by his spirit. Paul acknowledges the Galatians have the spirit, so they they are genuinely saved. But he wants them to think about how that happened. Was it because they observed some Old Testament law or kept certain rules or measured up to some standard? or was it because they believed the gospel when they heard it? Well, the answer is obvious. They were saved and received the Spirit because they believed. They knew that. That's true for us as well. We, are, we were saved, if we're saved at all, because we believe the gospel, not because we did anything or did a whole lot of things. It's not because our good deeds outweighed our bad deeds, like with this scale. Show me the scale. Show me the scale. There we go. Um, you know, I mean, some people think this is the way it works, right? God adds up all your good deeds, puts them on one end, all your bad deeds, puts them on the other If the good deeds outweigh the bad, then, you're, then you made it. Or it's not because our lives were morally better than 50% of humanity, like on this bell curve, you know. Are you, yeah, everybody's better than 50%, I mean, so we think. We are saved and given the Spirit of God strictly because we believe and put our trust in Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you haven't done that yet, you should stop listening to me right now and get yourself right with God. Put your trust wholeheartedly in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. So that first question was was a setup, an easy sort of softball type question that he lobs in there. The answer is obvious, but the next question will spring the trap because the next question has to do with follow-through. Verse 3, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? (laughs) J.B. Phillips translates that, surely you can't be so idiotic as to think that a man begins his spiritual life in the Spirit and then completes it by reverting to outward observances. Oh, yes, we can be that idiotic. (laughs) The Galatians were. (laughs) We are too. In fact, that's exactly the situation in many evangelical churches today. We've got the salvation part down cold. We say we're saved by faith plus nothing. You can't be good enough for God. You can't earn your way to heaven. All you have to do, all you can do is put your trust in Jesus. And that's right. But then, once a person is saved, what do we say to them? Well, you're going to have a quiet time every day and be in church every week and get in a weekly Bible study. And you, you help if you start memorizing scripture. You get a little older, you're going to practice solitude and silence and fasting and teaching Sunday school and playing in the band, etc. <laughs> right? This is what we say. Now, all those are good things. They're very good things. But listen, there is a a subtle but vitally important difference here that makes the difference between spiritual life and death. Certainly God loves it. There's a place in the Christian life for all these activities. He loves it when we spend time with Him. He loves it when we serve Him in all sorts of ways. He has a lot to say about exerting ourselves and buffeting our bodies and self-discipline, all the spiritual disciplines, all the rest. But Those things, in and of themselves, do not earn any points with God. They do not make him love us anymore. They are means to the end of a growing relationship with God. They are not the end themselves. And this is a switch that we sometimes make in our heads. The message paraphrase puts it this way. Only crazy people would think they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? We're not following through with our swing. We're changing something mid-swing, and the result is disastrous. The evangelical church in America believes in salvation by faith through God's grace and sanctification by hard work. And friends, this approach to the Christian life is straight from the pit because you can never do enough. Now verse 5 asks another question, and if we're not careful, we'll think it's the same question as verse 2, but it's not. There's a significant change in the tense of the verb. Verse 2 says, did you receive the Spirit through doing or believing? The tense of the verb in Greek means that the action happened at some point in time in the past. That question was about how we started on the Christian journey. Verse 5 says, does God give you His Spirit, and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Does God continue, now that you're saved, does He continue to work in your life and do things for you you couldn't do for yourself because you keep the law, measure up to some standard, or because you believe? The tense change from verse 2 is significant because now Paul's talking about our follow-through, how we live the Christian life. We started our relationship with God one way, by faith, through His grace. Our swing looked good, but now that we've hit the ball, we've met Christ through faith, we change our whole approach to one of works. Now, people who think they have to do something in order to be acceptable to God, in order to earn His approval, are frequently very hard workers. They become the most loyal, faithful, dedicated volunteers in the church, and we pastors love you. These people respond to every appeal for help, regardless of whether they're gifted for it, regardless of whether God's calling them to do it. They think, well, somebody's got to do it, don't they? And so they jump in. They give and serve and work and give and serve and work and give and serve and work until one day they crash. They wake up one morning or they drag themselves home late at night from yet another church meeting and they say, this isn't working. I hate this. My life stinks. I'm doing everything everybody ever told me to do for my Christian life, and I don't feel any closer to God. In fact, I feel a million miles away from Him. Where's the love? Where's the peace and joy? That's it, I quit. Sometimes they just quit the ministry or ministries they were involved in. Sometimes they leave the church altogether. And sadly, sometimes they leave the Lord Himself. They believed the lie that the Galatians fell into. They believed that they could please God. They could earn His approval and His blessing by doing something. Just do enough, and God will smile on you. He'll bless you with His presence. You'll attain that higher spiritual plane. Folks, you can't do enough to earn God's blessing. The task for you is not to do more, to serve longer, to work harder. The task for you is to simply believe that He loves you just as you are. Remember that old psalm we used to sing? just as I am. It's not only true at the beginning of our life, it's true all the rest of our life as well. He loves you unconditionally. Here's the gospel in one slide. Nothing you do that you ought to be doing or avoid doing that you shouldn't be doing will make God love you more than he does right now. And nothing you do that you shouldn't be doing or fail to do that you ought to be doing will make God love you less than he does right now. You can't earn His love, and you can't lose His love. You can keep striving, keep working hard to to be perfect, keep on keeping on the rules, but none of that makes God love you any more than He does. And even if you fall off the wagon into serious sin, that doesn't make God love you any less. Look, He saved you with full knowledge of your your sinful nature and what you're capable of. Is He going to reject you now just because you begin to act out of that occasionally? Well, we may have all that straight in our heads, but we don't always live like it. So we develop symptoms in our lives that create a lot of trouble for us. When you go to the doctor with an ailment, the doctor will ask you questions about your symptoms designed to diagnose the problem. So let me suggest some symptoms you may be experiencing, and you can see if any of these are true for you. Almost nobody feels all of these all the time. Uh, But if you sometimes think these thoughts, you might consider, do I have this disease? First, I believe I have to be perfect. I have to do everything right. I believe if I failed, I am a failure. I compare myself with others, and I either get puffed up with pride because I (laughs) conclude I'm better than that guy, or I fall into the pit of low self-esteem because I think they're better than I am, and I'm worse. I believe that if I do well, God loves me more, and I like myself better. But if I do wrong, God loves me less, and I like myself less, too. I tend to be negative and critical of other people. It's easy to find fault with them in order to overcome my sense of insecurity. I put other people on the same impossibly high-performance standard that I've got myself on. I become judgmental, intolerant, especially of those who are close to me. I believe God punishes me for my bad behavior. And I interpret misfortune or adversity in life as his punishment for some sin. I obey God, but it's out of fear and duty and guilt, not love. Everything is a duty. My motives are have-tos and shoulds rather than want-tos. And the bottom line is I feel like I have to do something more to please God to deserve his blessing. Now, I've overstated these feelings to some extent, but many of us lean in these directions to varying degrees. Many of these things have been true for me at times in the past. And all of these are produced by trying to run up a down escalator. Let's watch and see what that's like. That's what it's like. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the the theological term for the disease that all these symptoms are symptoms of is legalism. Legalism. An escalator, in this sense, is a law. It's a performance of a, a, a standard that we have adopted for ourselves. It's a way of knowing if we're okay. If we do this or avoid that, whatever it is, then we feel like God loves and accepts us. And if we don't measure up, then we feel like he doesn't like us. He's displeased with us. I call these things down escalators because if we just stand still, if we don't keep going up and going up, they carry us down further and further away from God, down into the pit of discouragement and depression and despair. In order to make any headway at all, we have to run very fast. do up this constantly moving down escalator. It takes a lot of concentration and energy, hard work and self-discipline, and at times we're very exhausted. I didn't know it would be so hard but we tell ourselves it would be worth it if we can just earn God's favor. One of the many escalators I've been on in the past is that of being a strong leader. I looked at other pastors who had stronger uh, spiritual gifts and talents in, in the area of leadership than I did and I told myself, I'll never be okay as a pastor until I'm as good as they are. Well, it never happened because I'm not them. But I kept trying and it kept putting me into the pit. Now, your escalator is different from mine, but a lot of people have them. So let me suggest some common escalators that people have today. One is how well our children are doing with the Lord. Many Christian parents judge themselves as successes or failures based on whether their children are walking with Christ. If they're not, then we feel like I'm not okay because I failed at my most important task as a Christian parent witnessing. We know we're all supposed to tell people around us about our faith in Jesus, but few of us do, so we load ourselves down with guilt about that. Our weight. Women especially suffer untold guilt because they don't look like the models in the women's magazines or on TV. Men may judge themselves by their athletic ability. That's why you see a lot of fat old men running around softball fields in the summer. (laughs) Trying to tell themselves they're still athletes. (sighs) Maybe there's a You've seen those guys. <laughs> yeah, right, that's amazing. <laughs> Maybe there was a performance standard at work that you tried to live up to. Or, you know, and the boss reinforced that, of course. And, and your family was encouraging you to go. You know, but if, if you failed to, to make the promotion, you didn't get the raise, you got cut in the latest reorganization, then you know, because you're supposed to do your work as to the Lord, then you failed yourself and your family and your boss and God. Related to that is how much money you make. In our culture, we measure ourselves against others by what kind of house we live in, what kind of car we drive, and what kind of vacations we take. Our worth as human beings is measured by our net worth. Another escalator is living up to other people's expectations, trying to gain their approval all the time, whether that's your spouse or your friends. Nice people at church, but they have really high standards for me. You yeah. know, people at work, your in-laws, whether it's the generation above you or the generation below you, you yeah. are you trying to earn their approval somehow? Anybody here still in school? Probably not. <laughs> you are, good for you. Okay, so look, you know how important it is to get good grades, Right? Yeah, your parents tell you you've got to get good grades. The teacher tells you you have to get good grades. The pastor says you're supposed to study as though you were studying for the Lord himself. So, you better get good grades. See? <laughs> see? I mean, but, but see, we absorb these things, right? And then we measure ourselves and our value as a person based on whether we get good grades or not. Maybe your escalator is the avoidance of some particular sin. People who choose this one... Typically, pick some sin they especially enjoy that they will fall into on a regular basis. Or, as I indicated earlier, your escalator may be comparing yourself with other people. If you're not as good as they are at whatever, at being beautiful or handsome or athletic or being a good parent or whatever it is, then you don't measure up, and God won't like you as much. The problem here, of course, is that it's very hard, if not impossible, to score 100 on all of these performance measures. Paul is saying in Galatians 3 that the law, any law, any standard we try to measure up to in order to be acceptable is a down escalator. What's yours? What is it which if you do it, you feel like God loves you a little more and if you don't, you feel like you've grown further away from him. I'd like to offer three steps that can help us treat this particular disease and get back to following through in our Christian life with grace. The first would be to search your heart for escalators or ask God to do it. You know this prayer in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any wicked, offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, begin by praying that prayer. Ask God to show you. Because when we've been saved by grace and God wants us to live in his grace, then if we don't, it's a serious error. It's a wicked way to try to earn his favor somehow. See? Because here's what happens. If, if we say to ourselves, well, okay, I'm saved by grace, but now in order for God to like me, in order for him to love me, in order for him to accept me, I have to do all these things. The implication of that is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was insufficient to make you right with God. And that's insulting. That is a wicked, offensive way. Ask God to lead you in the way everlasting, which is to live in His grace. (laughs) Secondly, believe His word. We sang a portion of this verse. The Lord your God is with you. This is (laughs) It might have been Ken Van Winkle's verse. It was also Kate Broughton's favorite verse. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I remember the first time I came across this verse. I was in seminary having my quiet time in the morning. Barbie had gone to work. I'm sitting there in our apartment reading this verse, and I thought, nah, that can't be right. God puts up with me. God tolerates me, but he delights in me? No way. That's what it says. I looked it up in Hebrew. That's what it means. (laughs) I did look it up because I couldn't imagine it was true. (laughs) It is true. (laughs) That's what God said to his people who were returning from captivity in Babylon. And that's what he says to us, his people who are living in a different kind of Babylon. He delights in you. And if you have trouble believing that, here's a little exercise you might try. Open your Bible to this verse, Zephaniah 3.17. Get alone, quiet, and just spend 10 minutes with that verse. Just read it over and over and over. Meditate, chew on every word, every phrase, and ask God to make it true for you. That you could believe Him when He says He takes great delight in you. And the third thing I would say is, accept his love. Accept his love. In 2003, I had an encounter with Jesus that changed my life. I had been very discouraged. Uh, I kept telling myself I wasn't depressed, but I was depressed all through 2002. I finally waved the white flag. I told the elders I I just couldn't go on. And the elders sent Barbie and me to a counseling center in Marble, Colorado for... Pastors who were struggling with one thing or another. It was two weeks there. and Towards the end of that time, I had a time to just get alone with the Lord, and I, I guess the Holy Spirit suggested this question to me. What do I think I would see if I could see Jesus physically in front of me? And as soon as I imagined that question, I had a mental picture of a man's face. His lips were smiling, and his eyes were sad. And I asked him, Why are you sad? And he said, Because you won't accept my love. And I felt like he had just smacked me. Because, friends, that was so right on. I couldn't accept his love. I was working too hard to earn it. Running up a hundred different escalators. Trying to be worthy of his love. (laughs) Huh. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't stiff arm Jesus. Let his love into your heart. He does love you just as you are, like the song says. He doesn't merely tolerate you. He likes you. He delights in you. Accept his love so freely offered to you in Christ. Get off the escalator. Follow through in your walk with God the same way you started. By grace through faith, not by works. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us please for the times when we try to earn your love. We try to deserve it. And you're just pouring it out on us. (laughs) Just because it's your nature to do so. Lord, I I pray for myself that you help me to continue to to live in this grace. And for each one of us, Lord, that you would set us free. I pray for the person here today who is Tangled up in the chains of the law. They're living in a cage. You've opened the door, but they don't walk out into the freedom that you've set us free for. So please, Lord, come. Show us the way. Convince our foolish, hard hearts, our bewitched hearts, that we don't have to do anything to earn your approval. In your name, amen. you